the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. As the energy transition gathers pace, no fuel's future is hazier than that of the least grubby hydrocarbon, liquefied natural gas. Note, I did not use the word clean there. Even the description of LNG is currently proving controversial, and if the division of opinion in the Lloyd's List newsroom is anything to go by, then the shipping industry is currently suffering from an acutely painful case of fence-sitter's cramp. What was once a relatively uncontroversial middle ground bridging fuel to a greener world is now a climate policy battleground. Shipping is about to get caught in the crossfire. On the one side, you have the super majors already invested in gas growth in the wake of peak oil production. You have an existing gas infrastructure and a body of industry know-how. And of course, you have the cargo interests keen to maximise the 20% plus efficiency gains promised by dual-fueled options that do go some way to burnishing their eco-credentials in the supply chain. But even before you start throwing methane slip into the debate and get to grips with the political and financial implications of the World Bank's anti-LNG stance, the dynamics in such demands remain unbalanced for shipping. Owners have a 25-year financing view. Charters tend to be no more than 10 years at best. But freight contracts are negotiated annually, and all parties acknowledge that LNG's longevity as a transitional fuel option is, well at best limited. We've already seen the likes of IKEA publicly state that LNG shipping is now not for them, and if the shippers shun gas, then those triumphant bets on dual-fueled tonnage may quickly start to look a little bit less attractive. I'm joined this week by two of Lloyd's List's finest to cut through the hot air surrounding LNG, our carbon-neutral sustainability editor Anastasios Adamopoulos, and our Greenwash Avenger and Markets editor Michelle Vizi bockman So we've had an interesting week when it comes to LNG. We've seen uh, MSC break cover. Um, They were sitting on the fence previously when it came to uh, LNG, but they've taken 11 ships off Eastern Pacific's hands. Um, We've been considering the World Bank's report when it comes to LNG. We've been scrutinising a lot of the uh, companies' emissions reporting this week. Uh, Michelle, that was uh, down to you. And of course, we've had our very own webinar this week, where it's fair to say that the panel were somewhat divided on LNG with you, Anastasios, uh, leading the debate. So let's start there, I think. We had a discussion this week. We had uh, the likes of Maersk, who are pretty anti-LNG when it comes to it. They have made no bones about their concerns of this being a transition that they don't want to get involved in. But the engine manufacturers, Vartzilla and DNV as a class society, are very much pro-LNG and see the advantage of a transition that can see us lowering our emissions as an industry. Anna, let's start with you. I mean, you were leading that debate. What's your view? Do you think that division within your panel is indicative of the wider debate going on in the industry right now? I do. Yeah, I do believe that you'll find that it's one of those issues that today and you know maybe over the past couple of years um, has really divided the industry and, and people are taking clear sides uh, as far as whether the fuel is appropriate in the context of, of decarbonized shipping, what role it can play, uh, if it can play any at all. So I do think the two sides we saw, which was the Merck side, being quite unequivocal in their disapproval of the fuel and their belief that 
all the investment that's going into it, into building the, the infrastructure, you know, it has a lot of questions about where it leads. Um, and and plus the <clears throat> the environmental sort of shortcomings of the fuel um, in terms of methane slip. And then you have the other side, which was Swartzilla and DMV, effectively saying, you know, LNG is, is not perfect, but one of the things that we see as, as a, a benefit is that um, LNG technology has presents a greater flexibility to retrofit in the future to retrofit with engines that can run on future fuels whenever those become available and the technology uh, is widely sort of adopted. So there is this there is this division of that this fuel is going nowhere and it's dead investments with potentially even negative environmental consequences. And the other view, which is actually it's good today and it helps, let's say, add some cushions in the transition to zero carbon future. Mm. I mean, it's fair to say that up until fairly recently, LNG has been not necessarily uncontroversial. It's been a debate in the industry, but I don't think there was too much of this polarized debate that we're now seeing. And, you know, some of the comments from uh Musk in the debate were really quite stark I, we'll, we'll cut now to um uh, Jakob Sterling who's the head of decarbonization innovation and business development at Maersk and he was pretty unequivocal about his views on LNG it does does LNG has a role in in the decarbonization of shipping no uh, we don't think so uh, it's a it is it is being portrayed as a transition fuel but a transition fuel towards what uh why would we need to install uh, very ex- in a very expensive infrastructure uh, and uh, invest in assets that run on LNG when the the, the will to wake so the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions uh, at best uh, is just marginally better than what we use today, and at worst, uh, which which is with a with a low pressure LNG engine, could be way worse than what we use today. LNG is a is a different fuel. It's a, it's a fossil fuel, um, and and clearly there's a lot of oil companies out there that has a lot of LNG that they need to get rid of, and therefore there might be a good commercial case for LNG for some players, but it's a commercial decision. It's not a decarbonization decision to go for LNG, and and I think it is it is is borderline greenwashing to call LNG a transition fuel towards uh, the decarbonization of shipping. So the, the ship owners clearly are hesitant i would say precisely because they know that this is a fast-moving policy debate where they risk being caught on the wrong side of you know what is now a shifting timeline when it comes to decarbonization there's an increasing number of ship owners exposed to lng via dual fuel vessels either in operation or in a growing order book but it has to be said, these are relatively small percentages of their respective fleets, suggesting that this is still a case of hedge betting and paying through the nose for flexibility. Michelle, I mean, we spoke about this on one of the market outlook videos that we did fairly recently, but mm. it's it, it's a relatively interesting slice of the new building order book, but it's by no means a competition to the conventional fuel right now, is it? Well, no. And you could also say that borderline greenwashing has been going on since the beginning of 2020 with the introduction of sulfurs, the uh, scrubbers, the sulfur abatement technology that allows many ship owners to burn high sulfur fuel oil 
and um, still comply with lower sulfur regulations. But as we see right now with the higher new growing number of LNG fueled vessels being ordered, there's a lot of money at stake by a lot of very powerful ship owners and ship charterers that I think is probably why we're seeing the debate intensify. Um, Shell, $2.3 billion invested in, you know, more than 30 new building ships that they either are going to to build themselves or charter. Mm. So it's um, it's a very, very interesting debate. And it's got to be had. It does. It does. Because we're not just talking about a few ships. We're talking about a transition and bets that collectively are going to cost the industry uh, and the wider supply chain billions and billions of dollars. And of course, one of the problems with the transitional bet on LNG is that we start building out an LNG infrastructure with the knowledge that it is transitory. And that means you're going to be pumping hundreds of billions of dollars into infrastructure that is, environmentally speaking, in five to 10 years time, something you don't want. Um, and that is a problem. When when big capital intensive assets get built, they tend to stick around. There are still more than 400 natural gas plants in the US that were built before 1970. These things do not go away. And the argument on the other side of LNG is that by investing in LNG and its infrastructure, you're essentially extending the use of carbon in the supply chain. I mean, that's been a concern right from the start, hasn't it, Alice? Yes, certainly. I think when you look at it in the context of the energy transition, one of the things that people are especially concerned about is the fact that if you're you're investing these hundreds, eventually hundreds of billions of dollars in these assets and um, in these assets and infrastructure, obviously the idea is you, you'd like to get eventually a return on your investment. So there is a concern that while we're investing in, the, in these assets and infrastructure, that will lead potentially to a delay in the energy transition because people will continue to use the assets as much as possible to effectively prevent them from what is widely now labeled as a stranded asset, which means it's there, but nobody really wants to use it because there are better options um, available. Mm. So it is one of the things that the proponents of LNG will need to to sort of work harder in making the case for because I would say it's fair to say that this is a clear shortcoming of this massive investment that we're seeing and which is arguably only going to grow. Here's here's some more shortcomings as well I think Annas is that um, the measurement of methane as a a greenhouse gas emission isn't measured currently under IMO, International Maritime Organization mandated rules and also by many of the ship owners and charterers that are already providing sustainability reports. and if methane slip is looked at and carbon dioxide emissions are looked at, it's only from the so-called tank to wake or just the, the actual consumption. They're not looking at the production of the LNG. And, of course, there have been some oil companies, I think Total was one, that will not take LNG from some from produced by some countries simply because of the huge um, disparity in methane slip between their production and and other fields. So 
the IMO really has to catch up so we have a complete and full picture of greenhouse gas emissions for emerging and transitional fuels. Mm. Yeah, and just, just to add to that, because that's a really important point. And we sort of, we've seen it a little bit, I want to say, with the 2020 sulfur cap, where you have a regulation that's, you know, targeting one very specific thing and a very important issue in terms of air pollution um, caused by, by sulfur. But what the IMO has to do with uh, 2015 decarbonization in general is take into account all of the all of the greenhouse gas emissions, all of the pollutants. I mean, we've seen data from the, the fourth IMO greenhouse gas study, which looked at emissions up to 2018. And we saw a massive increase in methane. It was, I think, over 150 percent between two, 2012 and 2018. And even though it still accounts for less than one percent of um, total international shipping greenhouse gas emissions, methane's global warming potential is much, much higher than CO2s. So I, I completely agree with Michelle's point. I think it's really, really important that when discussing, you know, it's funny because we say decarbonization and, and we use it as the equivalent of reducing or eradicating emissions. But I think we do need to be really careful in not forgetting methane and the other uh, pollutants. And we've made this mistake before multiple times as an industry where we deal with specific issues in isolation. And this siloed approach cannot work when it comes to climate change. You know, we talk about, as you say, decarbonisation. We should be talking about greenhouse gas emissions, which, to be fair, is the language being used in most of the IMO debate. But methane is still one of those hot topics that is increasingly going to be an issue. And we've seen, you know, the recent uh, UN reports making clear that methane is 85, 84 times more powerful in trapping heat than carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. And to that extent, by tackling methane, you would be accelerating the greenhouse gas reduction significantly by by prioritising methane rather than carbon dioxide. It's you know, the equivalent of stopping a supertanker versus just turning the engine off in, 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 in the uh, view of some of the experts that were quoted in that UN report. But for shipping, it is significant because although the fleet of dual fuel LNG is relatively small at the moment, it could potentially grow if the signals to the market are given that there is now the infrastructure support and there is now the demand from the shippers and the cargo interests. The problem, of course, is we don't know how long that transition will be. And that's the key question here. I think one of the interesting things that we saw this week was MSC taking the Eastern Pacific Charter, 11 ships, dual fuel, 15.3 thousand TEUs. It was a pretty good deal for MSC. Um, but if you look at the uh, whole fleet, it's only a fraction of their whole fleet. I don't think this is a question of Gianluigi Aponte suddenly turning around and saying LNG is uh, environmentally speaking, strategically, uh, the the play for us. They're just hedging their bets, commercially speaking. But I wonder whether that will then be taken as a sign of LNG is now the way forward for shipping. If you've got the likes of CMA, CGM, uh, MSC, and many of the other big players all making those moves, so there's a lot to consider there. Um, and not all of it is based, frankly, on science. A lot of this is about commercial hedge betting, effectively. Yeah, and. I think this goes back, this is a very good point, and it goes back to what Michelle said earlier about the, the reporting and what companies show. So we we can sit here and sort of criticize shipping companies or, or scrutinize them for, for 
the fuels they choose and their decisions. But at the end of the day, MSC would not be making this kind of move if they did not know that these vessels will be in demand. Mm. Now, if they had any doubts about, or if they had doubts about whether char- you know, Charter's customers would, would shun these vessels because they carry LNG, um, I really doubt you know, that in that case they would have gone ahead with this deal. Because not, not just because of the fact that they'd be going with LNG, but the sheer number of ships, the sheer volume. You know, it's, it's, you know, they say it's just the charter and that, you know, from what I understand, they're not necessarily planning on doing it again or, or they'll see, but the sheer volume just sends a clear message. Which mm. And these were they, these were not short-term charters. These were 18-plus-year yeah, exactly. charters. They're effectively lifetime of the ships. Exactly. So we need to we need to remember that as well. You know, the, these shipping companies are not going to just start spe- dumping billions into these more expensive assets that have you know more limited, still more limited supply chains, just because you know they 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 you know they are they believe that maybe it will look greener. They're doing it because they know there's going to be customer demand for it. So the customers are going to have to play, as with everything, play a role here in signaling, well, you know, we approve or we don't. Mm. What's going to be very interesting, I think, is when companies that use LNG-fueled ships start presenting data in their sustainability reports. I've been having a look at at some of them um, as yet, I haven't looked at a a company that uses LNG-fueled ships, but it is quite clear that the sustainability PR battle is going to be um, won or lost looking at what these emissions are going to tell people. And, of course, as we were saying earlier, Annas, you know, they're, they're really, in terms of the data collection and monitoring and management, these figures that are published at the moment are often without context and sometimes based on modelling assumptions, I can't see any reason why a company that would have so many data points from their vessels would make those publicly available. They have to provide them to the IMO at the moment and then they get anonymised with the, the flag state reporting. But the how figures on CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions are arrived at is is a science that I'm not quite sure is properly explained in these reports so far. And that's one of the main issues, I think, that is worrying a lot of people who are still on the fence, is they've seen the pace of change uh, at a regulatory level move beyond everybody's expectations over the last 12 months. Um, We've had a a change in uh, direction from the US with the Biden administration um, very much reversing the Trump policy when it comes to climate change. We've seen the expectations of what was originally pitched as an ambitious target from the IMO now being seen as not enough by many of the uh, players in the industry. And realistically speaking, I don't think anybody's making any great bets as to where the regulatory um, dial will be pointing in, in, in the next six months. So you're dealing with a fluid situation and you're dealing with a rapidly changing pace of expectations. But you're also dealing with that whilst trying to balance commercial investment and not land on the wrong side of uh, uh, history when it comes to uh, investments that are going to last in the ship's case, 20 years, but in the infrastructure case, possibly longer. 
You know, one thing I have seen, Richard, in some of these sustainability reports are some companies claiming that they have already met the IMO target for reducing their carbon intensity. Um, and they've done that simply by slow steaming or adding minor changes in routing, etc. So um, if that target has already been reached without changing fuel, then I think we really have to assess also um, how viable and practical and realistic the target really was. Well, that's true. I mean, I know at least a couple of ship owners that have told me, you know, in some detail about how they've managed to achieve similar levels of efficiency gains that are being touted by dual fuel LNG, simply by uh, changing paint coatings, adding Mevis ducts and, you know, hull form tweaks to conventional fuel designs. You know, you're in the realm of 20% before you even start touching the fuel. And I wonder whether those sorts of investments, which, by the way, are not cheap, which of those two strategies are going to play out the best in the midterm? That's going to be an interesting one to look at. I think looking ahead for LNG, um, I think given that there does appear to be customer demand for it, customer charter, whatever you want to call it, I, I do think it's going to continue growing. I think from the environmental side, the proponents effectively are now going to have to present quite clearly their case for why this is a viable solution even for the next 10 years and more importantly a viable enabler for decarbonization they need to explain how you know these sort of the, the retrofits that some people envisage from you know lng engines to ammonia how how would that work how much would it cost why would it make sense for it to happen and at, at the same time what you know what do they see as the future for the infrastructure that's there the terminals um, the different supply chains. I think people who back LNG and who want to come out and say it too need to effectively do a better job at explaining what happens with it over the next 30 years. And aside from simply telling us that it reduces CO2 by this much and we're doing, we're undertaking these efforts to minimize the methane slip, there, there needs to be longer term vision when it comes to this issue. And I'm not sure that we've seen that so far. Well, I would highly recommend all podcast listeners, uh, those of you who haven't listened to the decarbonisation webinar that we hosted earlier this week, go to lawyerslist.com. You'll be able to watch it on demand uh, for free. Uh, link in the description of the podcast. Uh, but for now, uh, Anastasios, Michelle, thanks for joining the podcast. We'll be back again next week. Thank you.